0: Hello and welcome to the second episode of Formula Trinity Talks. My name is Daniel Flood and I'm the control lead for the Formula Trinity driverless team. I'm also a fourth year computer and electronic engineering student at Trinity College Dublin. Today I'll be joined by Andrew Dye, a master's degree student in mechanical engineering at Trinity College Dublin and Charles Fry, a deep learning educator at Weights and Biases. Please enjoy today's discussion about deep learning, education and neuroscience.
1: So first of all, welcome, Charles. Happy to have you here. I'll kick off the podcast by asking you about your journey early on in research, because you were a PhD student today in UC Berkeley. Can you tell us a bit about uh, your beginnings?
2: Yeah, I had a a long journey in science to end up where I'm at now. Um, I initially, for a hot minute there, I wanted to do philosophy. uh, And then as I was doing philosophy, I was like, oh, man, I'm making all these claims about what we know and don't know. Uh, this is a lot of this is psychology. Really, we need good research on this. So I started doing some psychology research um, on you know altered states of consciousness on MDMA and ecstasy in humans, um, and then like that was that was fun. That was great research. I'd love to talk about that. There's some fun stories there. But then that it's just you know really you want to know more about the brain if you want to understand the mind. And so I started doing research in neuroscience simultaneously, shooting lasers into mouse brains, trying to see uh, like what's happening in populations of neurons and like trying to understand what's going on. in A brain is pretty hard because we don't really know how to process complicated information, how to make decisions, how to do those things in like a rigorous algorithmic way. You know, we we can make decisions. We can process images ourselves. We don't really understand how we do it. Uh, so like, I felt like I couldn't answer my questions until we understood computation better. Uh, and so I moved from neuroscience and neurobiology more towards computational neuroscience and finally towards uh, theoretical neuroscience, the branch of uh, of neuroscience where deep learning sort of was born and then ended up doing my PhD on optimization of neural networks uh, with the, the dream that this is one brick in the in the wall that will eventually build up our understanding of the questions I was initially interested in as an undergraduate.
0: That's an absolutely amazing journey. Talk more about deep learning, I guess, like you've kind of found your way through there. You like to share experiences with deep learning. So did you, did you find it difficult to say, going from more biology kind of top-based Science towards like computation?
2: It was a it, it was a long journey definitely. So you know I finished my, uh, my undergraduate degree. I had experience doing a little bit of programming in like MATLAB and R for data analysis. This is maybe common that if you're uh, at, I think nowadays maybe there'd be more Python in an undergraduate uh, in an undergraduate education for uh, you know for handling data for doing simple like statistical calculations, simulations, things like that um but i hadn't really dove deep into linear algebra and calculus and probability theory and you know all the math that you need for to really understand machine learning uh, so it was a, it was a long journey cuz i set myself the goal of doing like really rigorous machine learning work that was like you know mathematically grounded and and ended up sort of studying the optimization properties of of neural networks which is pretty um pretty high up there on the you know, on the scale of how much math background and how much, uh, you know, how much rigor is needed in order to do research work. Uh, but so that was a long journey that it was maybe four years of my PhD before I was really like actually capable of doing the, the research, uh, lots of time spent learning stuff online, taking classes, learning from friends. Uh, but there's, you know, the slightly easier path for somebody who has the same background that I had is to aim at an application to aim at like sort of some concrete thing that you'd like to um, that you'd like to put out there. So I ended up partnering with one of my uh, fellow neuroscience graduate students who is, you know, primarily doing work with with organisms in a wet lab, doing EEG and EMG readings from rats to try and study sleep. Uh, And he ended up building a neural network for sort of taking that data and classifying it determining is this uh, is this mouse asleep? Is it in its REM stage of sleep? um, Or is it awake? Uh, And so he built he built a neural network for classifying uh, that based uh, on the based on data that they had, and I helped them sort of turn it into a full on deep learning paper. So if you can, if you have an application, if you have an understanding of that application, and you can do, you know, some amount of the of the programming and the setup and the um, and the problem framing, uh, then partnering with somebody who's a little bit more experienced with you in terms of the the uh, the deep learning research whether that's a professor a postdoc a fellow uh, or more senior graduate student uh, that's a that's a great way to sort of get your toes into the field and that really helped my co-author uh, Zeke uh, start breaking more into the data science uh, world into the programming world from from wet lab and biology work.
1: Could you tell us a bit more about what was your favorite products that you were working on when you were doing deep learning research specifically
2: yeah so i guess there's probably there's probably two answers to that question one is you know my favorite research project that i worked on in in that process and the other would be my like favorite um you know project in general because as you know as part of um like the skill building that i did in my phd it wasn't just about getting the research papers you know getting them published and um like completing those aspects of the doctoral degree it's also it's a really great opportunity to sort of skill yourself up in general and so my favorite project probably that i did in my whole phd was actually something i did pretty early on um, which was for my qualifying exam so at the end of your second year in most of the phd programs at berkeley you need to take a qualifying exam to like move on to the next phase where you sort of switch over from being closer to what a master's student does with mostly taking classes, mostly learning. Uh, and that's usually when people sort of make the transition over towards um, being mostly research and maybe a little teaching. So the qualifying exam for neuroscience was this uh, big uh, like collection of, of questions um, like it was 100 sort of foundational questions in neuroscience. And so rather than sort of like writing in a private notebook, I decided to turn it into a personal blog. So so I just blogged all my answers to the 100 questions. I like got a group of my uh, like fellow graduate students together. We worked on them and sort of like honed the answers together. And then that ended up being both an opportunity for me to learn a lot more about building and maintaining websites and uh, and version control and uh, um, and the mysterious incantations of Git. That was one of my first experiences with that, um, but then it was all. It's also ended up becoming like a, a resource for other uh, graduate students in the future, since those questions only change very slowly, um, and it like you know the the pages ended up getting search indexed, so it got a decent number of hits, and still gets a decent number of hits for some of the some of those questions. Uh, So that that is, you know, sort of those broader projects were a big part of what I really look back on as some of the best parts of graduate school, because they would have been difficult to do elsewhere. There was encouragement to do these kinds of projects, um, like from supportive uh, faculty members and supportive other members of the program uh, and like the, the sort of freedom that you can get from a Ph.D., uh, from from being sort of on your own is is a great opportunity to pursue those kinds of like personal growth projects, upskilling opportunities. And yeah, um, so it doesn't quite answer your question about deep learning projects, but but I'd be happy to talk more about some of it.
0: yeah, well, actually took touching on, so you said like as you go in, coming from a master's kind of student, you um you move from being in classes to actually being on your own, and this is research that you want to do. We also say that you do a little bit of teaching. and now, Maybe it's a good time to talk about like weight and bias and stuff. So on on the website, you're put down as a deep learning educator. So obviously, what, what made you want to make transitions? Like, I have this knowledge now. I want to give it to other people. And maybe even talk a little bit about weight and biases themselves.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, maybe it'd be easier to just introduce where I work first. Yeah, so weights and biases is like an ML tools company. So we build tools for ML pipelines, making them better, faster, you know, more collaborative, more reproducible, uh kind of like a GitHub but for machine learning. So sort of specialized tools. Um, and one of the things that really drives the like ethos of weights and biases is that you should try and aim for uh like if if you want to build a tool that people want to use, you should go out there and like give people the tool, even if it's in like kind of a raw and rough state and and get feedback from them. And then also you should sort of aim at the like the sort of like maybe younger uh, like sort of up-and-coming kind of crowd um, the the graduate students rather than the professors the engineers um, rather than the CTOs the um, the undergrads who are in um, who are in engineering groups because those people are really willing to try out a tool and really willing to like change their workflow and update it and then eventually they're gonna go out and sort of like evangelize and and share this tool with other people so what that means is there's there's a real big need to sort of Teach people more about machine learning and, and deep learning as you're teaching them about this uh, this new tool that they can use, and that's where I end up in that sort of like uh, that. I guess I was going to say intersection, but it's actually really more of a union. Uh, both teaching people deep learning with weights and biases, and our toolkit as as a teaching tool that makes teaching easier and better, uh, and then also. Uh, teaching people who like already know some deep learning uh, and are and are you know working on it already how to make their um, their pipeline uh, better and faster
0: from my experience of deep learning, like a lot of the stuff that you get is someone you want to do something, you look up on GitHub or you find you look everywhere for little bits of information that you slowly collaborate and I feel like the supports for people to get into the field probably isn't as where it should be
2: yeah, that's an interesting take on it. I would say education nowadays, like there's this there's this real centralization of education in educational institutions, which are like very expensive to take part in, uh, especially in the United States. And then they are also like, in a lot of ways, very inefficient as like as institutions for education, especially the ones that also have like a research mission. Uh, And so there's it feels to me like we could probably do a way better job of educating people than doing it through this, the system that's basically been bequeathed to us from, uh, like medieval monks and <laughs> like uh, and the like 19th century legal and medical professions yeah i okay. so <laughs> uh, I jumped at the oppor- opportunity to do a kind of education and to like jump into a, a world where people were learning things, and there was like an ethos of like share ideas with each other and teach and learn. but it was less uh like tied up with the strictures of a university with you know semesters and classes and and degrees and more uh and more about you know sharing material on the you know on the internet for anyone around the world to participate in like at any time. Um, you know, as works best for them. I
1: definitely agree with the point as well that we need to rethink education so that we can get more people involved into stuff that they're really interested in rather than, you know, you might be doing a wide range of modules, especially if you're an undergrad. Uh, Going back to, I guess, the COVID times right now, which we are facing, a lot of people are, you know, forced to work from home, stay safe, do you think this? Do you think this has a big impact on you know how people do education and also especially has it driven any extra users towards I guess deep learning and voice and voices users?
2: Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. I would say it definitely has you know narrowly it's completely changed the way that teaching is being done for most people right like. Uh, in many places around the world universities are, are closed down for in-person classes and have been for uh, a year now some some of them have been like partially open and there's been a proliferation of, of hybrid approaches and also uh, you know everybody has has in, increased their capacity for this kind of remote teaching so before before the pandemic I did do some teaching at Berkeley that was, you know, very tech-enabled. So there were recordings of the lectures. The um, the lecture content was Jupyter notebooks, so that somebody could like follow along with the lecture and execute code that I'm just that I'm talking about as they go. Um, all that all the stuff was like put on uh, cloud computing servers, so that you know somebody actually probably could have taken almost every aspect of the class I taught uh, in in Berkeley on data science. Uh, they probably could have done every aspect of it except the in-person written exams. They could have done it via via the internet, uh, but because there hadn't been, a, a, you know, a, a moment where where we had to rethink what we were doing and and really think when is physical presence absolutely necessary and when is it just convenient. Uh, like it wasn't fully online and it wasn't you know fully remote capable. And that's I think the biggest change. Everybody's seen that they can do it and how it can be done. And I think that's a that's toothpaste that's not going back in the tube uh, in that. Uh, I think in the future, people will will like maintain the these these skills that they've learned and these processes that they've developed in the pandemic um, and in the Zoom era. For um, for remote education, I think that bring, that's it, it. May be a decade or more before we really see how those changes percolate outwards, but I think it can't. It will be a fundamental change.
0: Absolutely. Um, touching a little bit on your point where you were saying about um, how learning has changed in your experience of teaching people, do you find that some students learn differently, and there shouldn't be just one method of teaching someone? like material like I feel like a lot of people are different and life is quite diverse and um, mm-hmm. so trying to teach complicated things to people might require a range of methodologies like you.
2: yeah that's a that's a great point I think that the right my personal opinion on this and maybe this is a hot take is that as an individual educator it's maybe it's better to lean into your own strengths of how you you can teach people best than to try to be all things to all persons. Maybe at at the level of an educational institution or at the level of like a culture of education, it would be an it would be an excellent thing if there were like alternatives for all, like people who learn differently. So we we don't necessarily want to end up in the state where say there's like one website where everybody goes to to learn stuff about computer science and it's all, you know, determined by whoever, uh, you know, whatever community or persons created it, their preference for how to teach things, or their preference for how to explain things. Like that would be a bad outcome. A monoculture would be a bad outcome. A, a uh, a bad outcome. But, I, but that doesn't, I don't think that that implies that any individual content should be aimed at all, all people at once. And so I try like, you know, I have a particular style of the way I like to explain things, I like to bring in a lot of extraneous detail, uh, that would be distracting to somebody who really wants to just know, like, you know, give me the formulas, give me the code. Uh, And I'm like, well, what if we just briefly, let me briefly explain to you the siege of Plataea by the Spartans and the (laughs) Peloponnesians. Because I think that gives you some good context for where medians and modes came from. And not everybody's gonna like that. Um, But yeah, but I'd I'd rather st- stick to my guns, let somebody else stick to stick to theirs, and w- the end result will be hopefully a community where everybody can learn.
1: As well, you have a lot of content made specifically, you know, from way to place as well to teach people about deep learning. Can you tell us a bit about what kind of t- tools you use to teach people, I guess, all the kinds of mediums?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's like, this is, there's some well-known things that are out there, like taking advantage of, of free cloud computing, like Google CoLab or uh, the Binder project, which is both free and open source and open governance. Um, th- these, are, these are opportunities to ensure that people don't need a specific computing setup. Uh, all they need is like the ability to access a browser in principle, it can be done via a mobile phone or a mobile device. Maybe it's not a very pleasant experience yet, but maybe you know, in the next couple of years, hopefully, it will be. But this lowers the barrier to entry and makes it not just the lowering the barriers to entry in terms of like a, a distributive justice sense, but also like lowering the activation energy to get started with with a with a project, which um, also has distributive justice impl- implications. I think. But this um, this is this is huge. This completely changes the like what um, uh, like how people get started with your content and uh, like it, not taking advantage of that I think is a huge huge mistake the other really important tool that I see fewer people using but I think uh, should be used if you are teaching stuff that's you know that's you know computer science programming oriented is automatic grading and sort of automated feedback so this is essentially, the 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 approach that I like basically treats it like you would treat unit testing and integration testing in software development. So software development, you write down, you know, oh, if this function is implemented correctly, then it should behave this way and this way and this way on these inputs, it shouldn't do this, like and you you set that up as a as a as a bunch of, of code that tests the, the code you're writing or implementing, the product that you're you're creating, what have you, you can view essentially a student completing a homework assignment as attempting to do that process in miniature. Even if it's not actually a project, it doesn't have to be a a project that produces, say, a a car that drives itself, um, you know, or a, or a simpler, uh, you know, a simpler more hello world type project, um, like a like a tic tac toe game. You know, people people in computer science have incorporated testing into those as part of as part of an automatic uh, feedback loop. But you can actually incorporate that even you know even into just the implementation of say like a single function uh, or like a, a, a single piece of uh, of a bit of of computational homework, and that is huge for the kind of education you can do over the internet because the biggest missing piece when you try and teach somebody digitally and asynchronously is that like the the there's a tremendous amount of learning that happens in the the when somebody points out to you not just that you made a mistake and what the right answer is, but mm-hmm. sort of how you got to that mistake and then how to get from that mistake to the right answer um and and not just doing it and maybe even doing it in a in like sort of a rich way where de- you know depending on the the answer that you give, you get different feedback about that's not maybe the exact answer, but just like some hints. Anyway, you can build all this stuff pretty easily with exactly the same kinds of testing tools that you would use if you're a software engineer, a software developer working in a in a team, uh, and it it's like a, a 10x or 100x improvement in how much learning you can get. This is this is like these are things people have have demonstrated uh, the utility of these things, but people building content for online education don't use it nearly as much as I think they could.
0: Yeah, um, maybe switching from the perspective of educator to student. A lot of people listening to this podcast might not be technical or might not know a lot about computer science and programming and um, AI especially. Do you, you think that like machine learning, deep learning, all this is kind of stuff, something for everyone? Like people hear the word neural net and they think it's the next rocket science. They kind of scare away from the maths. But people should do you think people should be able to like access it and use it, especially if they want to incorporate it in their business
2: yeah absolutely. I think that especially at the level of like education and 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 hobby projects, it's it's very easy to get started. There's lots of material out there and lots of different on ramps. So there's stuff that's oriented at people who are very advanced software developers or who you know who have a special expertise in web development or or whatever. And then there's also stuff oriented at people who are are learning Python at the same time as they're learning the deep learning stuff. So the, there's a lot of material out there the I would stick with the stuff that's that's well regarded by the community. Mostly, you know, there are uh, there's a lot of content out there. Not all of it is good. But things like Andrew Ng's Coursera course, the fast A.I. course, um, I also quite like uh, the co- one of the co-founders of Weights and Biases has a YouTube series that's an introduction to deep learning that also doesn't really presume that much like Python or, or programming proficiency. Uh, these are these things are 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 you want to find that quality content that's out there, and and uh, and work on that. And a community. The fast one thing Fast AI does well is that there's a whole community of people learning this stuff, so you can ask questions from them. Um, these are these are the really you know sort of good ways to get started. Um, I think we are learning now in the last couple years in a way that it maybe wasn't obvious a decade ago that, you know, machine learning is in fact, an industrial technology. And when you use it in a business, when you use it in a serious engineering process, you know, serious engineering needs to be done, like thoughts about the impact of this technology on its on its users on, uh, on the um, on on the company on the environment, these uh, on the you know, safe questions of safety and fairness and justice, these Like these are, you know, it's at the start, it was sold a little bit as like, oh, it's, you know, it's objective, it's algorithms, like none of these problems will will come up. Um, It just works, uh, TM. Uh, And like that has not turned out to be the case in industrial practice of machine learning. It should have been more obvious, at least to me, uh, than it was, at least to me. So that's my one caution for sort of just like jumping out and starting to add machine learning to a business or a project that you're working on that's like really, really serious. But that's more about the thing being a serious project than it is about machine learning. Uh, Machine learning, just like any other technology, um, you know, once you know how to use it, you can um you can incorporate it in in the in the work that you're doing at the scale that you're doing it
1: and yeah like raise raise going back to the point as well like on uh, you know there is a lot of machine learning content out there now you know it's now that people realize that machine learning is something that's very useful for businesses but also accelerating engineering projects but uh do you think do you think that diving into a project is one good way to get started learning in depth, or do you think people should start from the first steps, like learning basics, basic concepts? What would yeah, you recommend?
2: That's a great question. I would say that it's important to switch back and forth between those two modes: the like hacker mode and the principled mode. Uh, and you you won't really understand things until you have sort of burnt the candle at both ends and tried both of those perspectives depending on your personality one of those two things or your sort of style of learning one of those two things is the uh is the better way to start the other thing I would add is that most people when they think of a project they often think oh I want to do something super concrete super uh, like applied out there in the world um and So they want to do something like, you know, make a make a robot or make a make a doorbell that tells you who's at your front door, like list their name or whatever, these kinds of projects, that's definitely a good way to do a project, the projects that I like to do that I think kind of straddle that line between something that's first principles, and so is like, you know, allows you to learn a lot in depth, and something that is a project and so allows you to make sure that you're learning like sort of practical skills that are that are applicable is something like uh, re-implementing something that exists out there as an algorithm, as a method, but like, in a simpler way. Getting rid of all the like, bells and whistles and optimizations and, and things that you need to get it to actually be, get it to cover that last 20% to be an, a, an applicable technology, and just focus on that, that, 80, that, that first 80% um, that, uh, that, gets, uh, that gets you most of the way there. So just as an example, Andre Karpathy does a really good job of doing this. Andre Karpathy is one of the um, you know sort of early innovators in this current wave of of AI and machine learning, particularly for natural language processing with recurrent networks and now transformers. Um, he took this this very intimidating and large uh, generative pre-trained transformer model from OpenAI and made this just like tiny little GitHub repo that implements the basics of it and is able it's not able to do all the crazy stuff that gpt can do it's not about to get incorporated into somebody's web 3.0 startup Uh, but you you know it generated shakespeare uh like pretty effectively uh, and you can run it on a single machine. You can run it in like free cloud computing resources. And if you were to do that yourself, like make one of these like simplified uh, versions of, of a complicated project, uh, product or algorithm or idea, you learn a ton about that, uh, about that idea in that process. So that is one of my favorite, uh, favorite approaches to, to learning just about anything in, in computer science and programming. There's a GitHub repo called build your own X. Uh, that you can find, uh, Daniel Stefanovich is the name of the person who who organizes it. Put it up, um, and it's uh, it's it's full of these kinds of projects, and it's a lot of great you can it's a lot of great templates uh, for coming up with your own, or you can just like read through something that somebody else has done and um, and like understand it from there.
0: Um, I might switch the topic up just a little bit because yeah. at the start you mentioned that you saw when you were learning about the brain and neuroscience is something personally interested in because have friends who studied it. You said that you went from neuroscience to deep learning because you felt to understand the brain, you need to understand how we do computations within the brain. Do you feel that deep learning in the future will teach us more about the brain as we develop the technology, essentially?
2: I think that the answer is yes. I guess, so I'm a little, there's a little bit of hesitation now as I'm thinking about this again after you know, it's not, it's not something that I've thought as much about since I started off on my journey and I was much closer to neuroscience, started off studying things that were like spiking neural networks, uh, which are much closer to, to what, uh, what happens in the brain or stochastic neural networks, things like that, uh, and sort of moved more towards the mainstream of deep learning over the course of my, of my PhD. The reason why I'm hesitating to say that the answer is definitely yes. Actually, let me first give the pro argument, then I'll give the con argument. The pro argument is that like once if you, you know, we we have no easily manipulable system that's capable of cognition in any way. Right. If you want to study, if you want to study problem solving, right, if you you either do psychology, in which case, you know, you have to come up with non-invasive ways to get undergraduates to solve problems in a in a windowless room on a in a university or you need to like descend into the guts of another windowless room to manage a colony of of mice or monkeys or flies. And if you think managing Kubernetes is hard, I should introduce you to an animal facility. Um, because boy, is that a, a, a real pain! If we could have like computational cognitive systems that were actually capable of solving like really like difficult cognitive and perceptual tasks we're gonna learn a ton about cognition and perception. Just like we'll understand the problem better by tearing apart the systems that can solve it. And it's way easier to do that with 100 megabytes of weights uh, than it is with a bunch of animals, humans included. But the, the, so the counter argument though, is that you know, deep learning has on, has kind of only gotten further from neuroscience over the last ten years. Like people like Jeff Hinton, who uh, uh, who were working on it in the like 90s and 80s, were very close to neuroscience and psychology and cognitive science. Nowadays, the the on ramp is way more through computer science, is way more through applied mathematics, even physics, uh, and so there's less inspiration is being drawn from those fields. And a lot more emphasis is being placed on scalability, on engineering controls, and on like you know ideas and intuitions from, the, like the world of engineering. And so you know a transformer is a is a pretty wild architecture, uh, and figuring out how to map that onto something that might be in a brain is pretty difficult. And there's this idea current in the in the world of machine learning the the uh, the bitter lesson. Uh, Richard Sutton wrote uh, wrote this piece that's now um, become uh, like a, a bit of an article of faith for people, which is that rather than coming up with like a, a complicated, specific solution to a particular problem, the thing that works best is just do something simple and scale the hell out of it. Uh, and that has, I think, generated systems that don't look as much like biological systems that that maybe are doing something quite different, even in the form of their... Uh, of their of the cognition that is occurring in their in their computation, and so maybe that will like a transformer solving a vision task actually looks quite a bit less like a visual cortex than a convolutional network does. There's already some some research coming out demonstrating that so that's the only caveat I have that maybe we might see a break between what neural networks are are doing and, and what they're what they are like and what biological neural networks are doing and what they are like
1: so as we don't have to worry about uh, computers taking over the world developing consciousness anytime soon so, <laughs> so yeah,
2: this is this is this is true i think one uh, along with learning that maybe the you know that this is uh an industrial technology that requires like industrial engineering controls and thinking uh in order to apply it at the scale people want to apply it in addition to that lesson we've also learned that progress is maybe a little bit slower in terms of industrial application, and in terms of maybe you know achieving uh, like something that looks like consciousness, uh, then it's it's definitely slower than it might have seemed in 2012 or 2013. Even though we're still making massive engineering strides and new new applications of the technology are coming out, I think it maybe people's timelines for uh, for the singularity or whatever uh, are <laughs> maybe been have maybe been pushed back by the experience of the last uh, ten years of. ML.
0: Actually, it's a good point as well that it's unlikely that you know we're obviously going to have this overlord that's just going to appear out of nowhere from the work that we're at now. But in modern day, AI has kind of become a bit of a symbiosis with people. As in, like you have your your smartwatches, your phones, you have all this technology around you. And um, you see Elon Musk with his Neuralink straight into the monkey's brain playing pong. And um, mm-hmm. what do you think is the future of Humanity's relationship with AI and kind of technology in general?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a tough question. I think it's actually the Neuralink example is pretty instructive um, in that that tech, the like technology for that kind of um, brain computer interface has been around for a long time. Um, Like, uh, yes. Uh, So this is, this is something that neuroscience people maybe have a, a little bit of a beef with the way Neuralink presents their results that it doesn't but you know, make clear to people that this is not that the like quantum leaps in technology here are in terms of like you know uh, like power efficiency and um and things like that rather than in like what it fundamentally makes possible. because it's, it's been about twenty years since maybe fifteen years since the first demonstration of a monkey playing a computer game uh, using an electrode in its brain the like that 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 gap of 15 years that is a long time and it still is not a technology that's like it's just starting to get applied in humans in like humans with very serious medical conditions like tetraplegia uh who can't move any of their limbs are have implanted electrodes like this for brain computer interfaces there are clinical trials of that ongoing um And it's, you know, it's, it's slow, it's halting, it looks far, far less like the, uh, like the Matrix and Neo plugging in and out, and far more like the, the halting manner in which which software and hardware like slowly improve iteratively over time and start off being, you know, sort of unpleasant and difficult to use, and only later achieve their potential. So I think like, the, there is the possibility for great changes in how humans interact with computers, how we interact with technology, with things like brain-computer interfaces, and with things like artificial intelligences and, and machine perception. But the, the process is extremely slow and very hard to predict. It's, despite the fact that it moves slow, the direction it moves over a long period of time is, is hard to predict and at in the meantime there are a lot of very important and interesting ethical questions to consider about technology that are far more pedestrian about to whom does this technology grant power to whom does this technology like impose on whom does this technology impose subjecthood and these are these are i think the the difficult and important questions to be thinking about in, in speculating in sort of the like philosophy of of machine learning and artificial intelligence more so than possibilities of super intelligences or you know of fundamental changes to how humans and technology interact
1: yeah as technology does progress I guess, uh, when computer science first became popular as a tool for, you know, engineering, we have been seeing here in Ireland that like more and more secondary school students are being taught computer science at an earlier age. Do you think it'll be the same for, uh, deep learning soon as well? Do you think we'll have kids who will be, you know, learning more about more and more about deep learning as it becomes more commonplace?
2: That's a great question. Computer science took a very long time to go from like, you know, Turing and Church writing their uh writing their fundamental work to uh to kids in classrooms programming turtles that implement for loops and ifs as they pursue lettuce. Uh and in that time what had to happen was computers had to basically permeate uh every aspect of our lives. While you know, in the end, not changing fundamentally a lot of things that much, right? Like the things that you would teach a third grader are are probably would look quite familiar to a programmer of the '60s and um, and maybe even to somebody like like Turing. And so, I don't necessarily know that deep learning has that level of staying power as an idea that you know. At one point, people were really excited about random forests and about support vector machines for machine learning. These uh, these earlier techniques they're still very good at certain problems that that neural networks struggle with. And so, while it's not impossible that deep learning is like a fundamental technology that you know will last as long as computers last, it's also very plausible that that it's not. Um, and so, if it does change more rapidly than computer science does. If it's replaced by something else five years from now or 10 years from now, whether that's, you know, if we actually finally got really good at integration, we'd be able to replace all this with Bayesian uh, uh, techniques and it would look quite different from deep learning. So, you know, and maybe some graduate student somewhere is working on uh, some crazy, crazy approach to, uh, to computing integrals on computational graphs that will just solve this problem for us. Just like people were working on fundamental neural network Technologies accelerated uh, computations uh, in, in the wilderness in the '90s and the 2000s. So that makes it hard. I, I don't necessarily expect that to happen, um, but it is definitely a potential future if deep learning and uh, you know, in the form of differentiable programming in the in this like very broad sense of what deep learning means. If that is in the end a fundamental technology that uh, that lasts.
0: Yeah, amazing. Do you have any advice that you would give to, say, a student or someone researching, research, maybe whether it's an AI or any of their relevant fields, like someone who's learning about something that they feel is important or passionate about, like something that probably would have motivated you through the years to keep going with what you're doing? Um, Any
2: words of advice? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question yeah for me the motivation to continue learning has pretty much always actually been teaching that i really enjoy getting to share knowledge with people i really enjoy getting to like you know i enjoy the the process of like presenting and sharing ideas i enjoy the like you know the like look of appreciation uh and uh, and even like surprise on somebody's face and and excitement when they finally understand something and maybe that you know that's that that was my motivation that's what i loved and so that's what i did when i like i mentioned that my favorite project in graduate school was writing that blog about the qualifying exam questions like that that i i found as many opportunities as i could to turn like l- l- you know to turn learning into teaching for other people that's not it maybe you know it requires a certain amount of uh, of extroversion to want to get out there and talk to people and even to post uh, blogs and try and get it out there on on social media so maybe for you it looks quite different. Maybe the motivation is is doing stuff is making stuff. I think for a lot of people who consider themselves engineers first and foremost making something is that inspiration. But I think you should try and identify what that is. Like look around you at the at the people, you know, who are successful or who are following their passions and th- and look at how they think about the about what they are doing and what brings them joy and find, you know, use those as templates, you know, mix and match them, come up with your own thing, find that so that it becomes like a joyous process rather than a slog uh, to to learn these things and do these things. If you're just doing it because, you know, you did an economic calculation and you've determined that it is the greatest degree of expected future utility evaluated today, like you're, you're uh, maybe some people can, can motivate themselves. <laughs> but I, I don't think it works for most of us.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree, 100%. Andrew, do you have any final questions?
2: Yeah, I'm delighted
1: to hear as well that you have you know, good inspiration for people doing what they enjoy doing. I think that's the best way to learn, as well as being happy as well. So uh, I think that's it for us. Thank you again, Charles, for being a guest on the podcast. It's amazing to hear from you, um, from, from your insights on you know your early research, your work, and ways and voices, and also, uh, you know, sharing bits about what other people can do to, mm-hmm. you know, get started on their journeys.